You're listening to KOOP Hornsby Austin 91.7 FM and on the web at koop.org. Welcome to Issues for Your Tissues, the definitive discourse on reproductive health and well-being with your host, Katie Vitale. The views and opinions expressed on Issues for Your Tissues may not necessarily reflect those of Co-op, its board of directors, or anyone else anywhere else. The information offered is not a substitute for the advice of a licensed medical professional, which I am not. Thanks for tuning in to Issues for Your Tissues. Welcome back to Issues for Your Tissues. I'm your host, Katie Vitale. I am, again, bringing you news and information pertinent to reproductive justice, sexual well-being, and uh, all things related. To that end, I think that it's, uh, it's prime time, or it's been prime time, that I got to share uh, this book and this um, these authors, or this author in particular, with you tonight. Uh, it's There's a... Um, Anyhow, let's just cut right to it. Jessica Mason Piccolo is one of the co-authors of Crow After Row. Um, this is how separate but equal has become the new standard in women's health and how we can change that. Uh, other co-author, another Issues for Your Tissues um, previous guest, Robin Marty. You can find these guys work all over the Internet. Uh, and Jessica Mason Piccolo, who is joining me today, and she is the, a writer uh, for Rewire News, you can find more from her at rewire.news. And she's an adjunct law professor in Boulder, Colorado. She's a former assistant director of the Health Law Clinic 
at Hamline Law School in St. Paul, Minnesota, and a former litigator. I want to thank you so much for joining me again, Jessica. Oh, Katie, I love coming on your show. Thanks so much for asking. Well, it's it's really important for uh, for me and for my listeners to get your sage legal um, expertise because th- there are a lot of things that you know I-, I can say this is totally unconstitutional or this doesn't make any sense or this is clearly an undue burden, and you're always you're always there to you know um, bring some some balance and some uh, uh, some good. Um, background into all of this for me. And so I think it's especially important to have that kind of insight when we look at laws and uh, how they are affecting women. So um, a lot of my listeners, you know, they're all good looking and smart. So they already know about uh, Jim Crow and Jim Crow laws. But um, this, the reference to it, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't always put these things together that that the current uh, women's health uh, truncation efforts by social conservatives were really um, kind of like that or, or very akin to that. Um, has it always felt like that to you or was there an aha moment where you saw all of this stuff in the same place and you said, this is, this is what they're doing or how did that come about? Well, I mean, I think it's first of all really, really important to acknowledge that um, in particular for women of color, there has always been a substandard separate um, system of accessing healthcare, particularly for low-income women across the board um, who have relied on Medicaid um, historically to um, receive access to healthcare generally and, and reproductive healthcare specifically. But one of the things that we noticed, um, particularly after the 2010 election, and I um, fully expect to see um, another uptick once the Trump administration is installed, was a um, real sweep from state to state of model legislation um, targeting abortion rights and with a very specific strategy of creating a constitutional carve-out where a fundamental right, um, which is the right to reproductive autonomy, reproductive privacy, that includes the right to an abortion, the right to not be sterilized, right? This is a very broad uh, thing that we're talking about, right to have access to contraception, Um that social conservatives went on a very specific legal strategy to create what, like I said, this constitutional carve-out where you have one fundamental right that is subject to a very different legal standard than another. And as a result, you're creating um, writ large, broad scale, two separate um, and inherently unequal healthcare systems. And we are about to go back to that very same thing, only to be exacerbated by um, an extra level of state-level attacks on reproductive choice. Yeah, that I, this is more important every day that goes by since uh, the Texas legislature is back in session. Uh, we, I think we might have talked about this on a, on a past show, but the maternal mortality rate in Texas has doubled in just a span of two years. And so it's, it's worse than any other industrialized nation's uh, piece of nations, whatever, um, in, industrialized nations, maternal mortality rate, the state of Texas has got just the, the worst. And I, I believe, and I know that there are, of course, we always want more studies, but I'm, I'm sure that, that we can connect the dots between the policies that have been um, implemented and the downturn in, in 
uh, health outcomes for women, regardless of, uh, you know, whether or not they choose pregnancy all around, because a lot of these things were caused by uh, compounded other health conditions that weren't diagnosed or weren't treated leading up to it. And this speaks to just a lack of regular care for a lot of people and having the most uninsured people in the nation. Uh, Texas is, uh, it seems like it's, um, you know, we're out there at the fringes and, uh, and a lot of people are going without, and that was uh, clearly connected to these outcomes. Well, and I think, you know, we, uh, Robin and I wrote about it in the book, um, but under very different auspices, right? Um, in, in the book, we talk about Texas in terms of being at the forefront of um, restricting reproductive um, health care access through uh, public assistance programs like Medicaid. And now when we hear uh, House Speaker Ryan talk about defunding Medicaid or defunding Planned Parenthood, what Ryan really means is cutting Planned Parenthood out of being a qualified healthcare provider under the Medicaid program. So they are very specifically targeting Planned Parenthood because it is a comprehensive healthcare provider that's standalone that provides abortions in addition to a bunch of other services and rewriting the rules so that um, Planned Parenthood doesn't qualify for those services. So it's sneaky lawmaking um, and combined with, you know, some market tested, uh, you know, uh, coined phrases that um, I have to give conservatives credit for. They've really led the way. And I mean, you know, Texas, you mentioned the, the maternal mortality rates. I think it's important to mention, too, that our incoming vice president, Mike Pence, oversaw the single greatest HIV outbreak in this country, in part, in large part, because the state defunded Planned Parenthood. And so, you know, these are things that when you put them sort of um, when you start to put them together, which is in part what Robin and I really tried to do in the book, you see that, you know, there there is a very strategic strategy at play. And what we think is an isolated event in Texas, right? Like, oh, Texas is bananas. Texas is going to do Texas mm-hmm. is really happening all over the country. It's happening in Indiana. It's happening in Wisconsin. You know, the only reason it's not happening in more states is because we have a few Democratic governors left in place, but, you know, progressives and liberals have been losing state houses consistently, you know, for the last 15 years. And so what we're really seeing is is a fruition of a long-term, um, very specific strategy, you know, it, it, which includes the states. It includes installing federal judges um, and training a battalion of conservative lawyers. I mean, there's there is no end to um, the depths of this. Yeah, it's, uh, I would say it's shocking, but I feel like we've, uh, unfortunately, are getting used to this uh, regular, continued onslaught of uh, of anti-choice legislation and, uh, and, and policies. There are, so I, I did, and well, I liked in not a liked way. And I liked that it was there, that Texas had its own chapter in the book. And when you talked about uh, the the lack of access for people, and, uh, and then I mentioned Pence and his, uh, his efforts to make Indiana the number one HIV outbreak state in the nation, um, it, it called to mind one of the quotes uh, that, that you guys offered um, about a patient who testified in a public hearing that her doctor had told her 
If only your relationships with people and God were right, you would have fewer health problems. And and, and that seems to be the kind of... Uh, the kind of thing that, that we're hearing more and more about, like in Kentucky or where they were saying that you can just choose whether or not to conceive and, the, you know, the onus is on you whether or not to get pregnant. Uh, or if you're talking about here in Texas where where they'd fight anything from uh, increases uh, to for paternal or prenatal care to um cancer prevention, it just seems that the, there's, I, I can't see how they don't want people to suffer. It's, it's kind of difficult. And when you were going through and um, looking at the, the numbers and the stats on health outcomes, not just in Texas, but around the country, um, did you see anything that was positive? I mean, you said there were a few Democratic states left where they were uh, able to uh, hold off the barrage, but are any any good stories out there for listeners? Yeah, you know, um, California, man, we need to give our neighbors to the West a huge round of applause and a lot of credit because they are at the forefront of not just holding back um, this tsunami of attacks on reproductive rights, but affirmatively passing and enacting legisla- legislation that advances reproductive rights. So, for example, making it possible for people to pick up a year's supply of contraception at one time. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you have to make time out of your schedule um, to go and pick up a supply of birth control pills, for example, um, once every sometimes if you're lucky, three months, but some pharmacies require you to come in, you know, um, once a month. For If you are on a wage job, that is not necessarily something that is convenient to do. It also might not be, um, you know, an easy place to, to get to immediately. You know what I mean? Like there are costs involved in that. Um, and so that is, that is one example. Um, and I think we're starting to see um, at the state level pushback um, in response to Republican promises to repeal the Affordable Care Act, including the birth control benefit within that. So today um, uh, in New York, they announced a plan to try and pass uh, a statewide contraception benefit uh, that would uh, protect access um, for those in that benefit in that state. Colorado is trying to do the same Minnesota's trying to do the same. So we may see states pushing forward in that regard. Um, the other thing I will say with regard to the current climate is, uh, you know, it's, it's bad. I mean, we're going to see, we've already seen so far is, in the first two weeks of January, um, I want to say 55. I know at the beginning of, of this week when, when the show, you know, the week that the show airs, um, we had 53 anti-choice uh, pieces of legislation already introduced. You know, we're talking the very beginning of of January. Some states aren't even in session yet. We had 20 um, anti-LGBTQ pieces of legislation introduced already this year. So this is, you know, despite conservatives saying that that there's a lot of economic anxiety and they want to ease the economic burden that the working class um, feels, that is all a bunch of garbage. Um, None of it is true. And what they are intent on doing is enacting at the state level a very conservative social agenda while also making it possible to funnel money out of the state and into religious coffers. There's a case right now um, 
that we're waiting for the Supreme Court to, to schedule called Trinity Lutheran. And what is at issue um, are block grant funds, right? So similar to Medicaid, that's a block grant fund. The federal mm-hmm. government says, here's a chunk of money, states, um, to, to work in this cooperative program, but we give you the ability to decide who gets that money, so long as they meet the certain criteria, right? Same exact conversation we have with defunding Planned Parenthood, except at Trinity Lutheran, what's at issue is um, whether or not states can be required to give some of that block grant money directly to religious institutions. Currently, the First Amendment prohibits that, right? Because government uh, funding of religious institutions, regardless, directly is a violation of the Establishment Clause, right? It Mm -hmm. suggests that the government is favoring, is establishing a preferred religion. Um, But the Supreme Court's about to look at that, and we don't know when. And Donald Trump, and we know it's this term, um, and Donald Trump has promised us a Supreme Court nominee in two weeks, um, thereabouts. And so while there's some things that the Democrats can do, um, you know, there is the possibility that we will have a ninth conservative justice um, on the court when this case gets heard. And um, they will allow states the opportunity to send block grant money directly to churches. Um, and when that happens, you know, you're looking at subsidized daycares. You're looking at, I mean, you know, public education and that, you know, that's terrifying when you think of who Trump has nominated for uh, the Department of Education. You know, Betsy DeVos is a woman who believes in um, charter schools and has heavily funded them. She's heavily funded uh, conversion therapy, you know, forced abuse of LGBTQ kids um, and you know, just I realize I probably sound like I'm rambling a little bit, but my point no. is all of these things are connected. And so when we talk about, you know, the theme of the book, which is really creating a separated, segregated society um, that really impacts women the hardest, and it impacts women the hardest, the more marginalized down the road you go. So Certainly, it impact, there is an impact on white women, but that impact is much more minimal than it is on black women, than it is on queer women, than it is on trans women. So, you know, these are all um, issues that I think as we're moving forward in the Trump administration, we have to um, really work together and not be siloed and wedged out of it because it's going to take all of us together in, in, uni- you know, uh, in unison to really be able to hold this back. That's so true. I want to remind listeners, you're tuned in to Issues for Your Tissues on Co-op Radio. My guest today, Jessica mason Piclo, who is author, co-author of Crow After Row, uh, How Separate But Equal Has Become the New Standard in Women's Health, and How We Can Change That. Uh, she's also a contributor at Rewire. You can find them rewire.news on the internet. Uh, you can also find her teaching in Boulder, Colorado, teaching law, and uh, and reading a lot of laws and telling us a lot about them. Uh, when when I was going through the book, uh, you had you have many chapters, and a lot of them refer specifically <laughs> to, to states and and cases, stories that happen in them. But in this, it seems like uh, each of them can can point directly to a piece of anti-choice model legislation that that has been or is being currently passed around from state legislature to state legislature. Uh, like like a weird virus of sorts and um it it was interesting to see or to you know to say oh yeah that's where that started or oh this is this is um 
how that came about, or um, especially with the recent, <laughs> the Ohio heartbeat bill that that got shot down, and then the one that got passed. And you had you guys had written a chapter on Ohio because this is something that they had been pushing regularly and that had never happened. Could you tell us a little bit about your your thoughts on Ohio when you were reading this, and then what <laughs> you were thinking? I am so glad you brought up Ohio because Ohio is sort of like the perfect example of all of this. And, and right, you know, right. um, at Rewire, we track these laws, right? So we have a legislative tracker and you hover on your state and it shows you all of the laws, not just that are in place, but that um, have been proposed, the status that they are, the lawmakers, the they're organized according to category. And so for Ohio, we're talking about heartbeat bans, um, so-called heartbeat bans. These are kind of ridiculous. I, there's, there's a couple fun stories with this. So in the book, Ohio is a chapter, and um, in and this was in you know uh, uh, 2008, I believe they started pushing this in Ohio. Mm-hmm. I might be off a year or so, um, but and you know seen it again and again and again. And the basic premise of the bill is an abortion ban as soon as um, a fetal heartbeat is detected, and they use heartbeat very specifically because, you know, what do you think of when you think of heartbeat, right? You put your hand over your chest like you feel your heartbeat. But in reality, at about six weeks of development, what we're talking about our fetal heart tones. So electrical impulses that are happening within a cellular um, mass. I mean, like, we just need to be correct about the science. So there's that part of it. Um, but what's pretty amazing is the first go-round of the um, heartbeat bill that we focus on in the in the book, and this story is is just fantastic. Is you know, conservative lawmakers um, uh, wheeled in a pregnant person um, to give them a sonogram as you know, an ultrasound, as as to try and drum up some emotional, um, visceral support for this, and they couldn't get the fetus on. You know, like, so the fetus wouldn't cooperate. It wouldn't show up. And you know why? Because it's six weeks old. There's nothing that you can really show at that point. So I love that story for a couple of reasons. One, it shows that there is really no fundamental basis in science in any of this stuff and that lawmakers either know that or they don't understand it, which should be very terrifying um, broadly. Like, who are we electing? And, you know, I'm not saying our lawmakers have to be experts in every subject um, and every law that they read and that they sponsor and that they pass, but you should have a fundamental working knowledge of it at least. Um, And and I don't think that that's an unreasonable response. Um, And so Ohio is at it again. Um, and here we are, fast forward, um, and they are absolutely pushing the limits. And, you know, uh, Ohio did the same thing with trap laws. You know, we think of trap laws in, in your state of Texas. But Ohio's been passing trap laws, and, in, in, you know, the same is true with Missouri um, in, in Kansas. So when you talk about it spreading like a virus, I think that's an excellent um, and really perfect description of, of what happens here. You know, lawmakers find success in one state. Um, they have a model bill and they drop them off into all their, le- into all their lawmakers. I mean, it is the ALEC model, right? Like mm-hmm. you just jam it through. Um, and up until we had the whole Men's Health v. Hellerstead decision, there did not appear to be much stopping that. Um, and thankfully, we have that decision because um, it's not just that it was a win in terms of striking down the trap laws, but the entire basis of the opinion and what Stephen Breyer did so well in it is to make the case for um, the fact that these restrictions must be grounded in data and science. 
that it is fine, lawmakers, if you have a beef with abortion rights and you want to try and restrict them and, you know, you have your moral um, uh, problem with it or, or whatever that is. But if you're going to go ahead and attack a fundamental right, you better at least have science on your side. And that is an important decision because it's not just about reproductive rights. You know, that that reasoning hopscotched its way into a federal district court opinion in Alabama striking that court's voter ID law with the same reasoning that says you are attacking a fundamental right and you have zero evidence of, in the Alabama case, voter fraud. And so, therefore, you do not, lawmakers, get to just do this willy-nilly. You have to actually show that there's, there's a reason. There's science, there's data, there's information that when you say you're protecting women's health, you're actually protecting women's health. And when maternal outcomes go down, you know, when turnaway studies show that there are women who are forced to carry to term pregnancies that were non-viable to begin with, we're talking about, you know, widespread damage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Texas, you know, is I'm not trying to pick on you guys at all. I love Texas dearly. Um, I have family and, and friends there. And, and oh, just you can you can say don't spare us. We've seen but a lot. No, I know. I feel like Texas gets a bad rap. But in a lot of ways, you guys really um, are a good example to keep coming back to um, because most recently um, you passed and and it was challenged and it's currently blocked. But this fetal uh, Disposal remains law, right? This law that requires that. Um, oh yeah, the termination. fetal funerals. Yeah, yeah, yeah fetus funerals. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the strategy behind that is to create expense and emotional damage. I mean, you know, it's it's a shame and and money tactic. Um, but when lawmakers were pressed about wh- how that was going to happen, they were like, oh, we figured it would be a mass burial at about two bucks, two bucks a pop for the hospital. You're like, I'm sorry, where is your respect for human life there? You're talking about mass graves. Right. And they said that the whole cause of it or in court, they said that it was uh, based on a need to have an increased dignity. And exactly. I, yeah, that's that would be the opposite of dignity. And so I think one of the things that the whole women's health decision pulled back and um, that some of the other recent um, reproductive rights wins in the courts have pulled back is that lawmakers have really, you know, since 2010, had kind of a blank check to restrict abortion rights, and they've gotten a little comfortable with that. And courts are finally starting to clap back. And, you know, it's, it's important and just in time. Um, you know, President-elect Donald Trump has promised to push Congress to bring a federal 20-week ban. You know, now I know Texas already has a 20-week ban in place. Um, it's one of, I think, 13 states that, that does. But, you know, what we're talking about here is an absolute national unconstitutional pre-viability ban. So it's giving the finger to the Supreme Court and to Roe v. Wade. I mean, can you imagine if we, if Democrats did that during the Obama administration with um, uh, Citizens United, like just found a legislative answer and were able to jam it through? That would have been amazing, but we don't. We and we haven't because we don't have the numbers. Um, you know, but so those are some of the things that are at stake. And you know, thankfully we have federal court decisions um, out of Iowa, or I'm sorry. Uh, Idaho and Arizona, um, and um, there was one in, in Georgia, but that lapsed 
that blocked as unconstitutional 20-week bans. And the Roberts Court, in the case of the Arizona 20-week ban, refused to take up their case. Arizona really wanted it to go to the Supreme Court, and the Roberts Court said no. Um, So maybe there's less of an appetite for a direct row challenge with the court. Um, I don't know. I I think, frankly, it's going to depend on on who the ninth seat is. Yeah, I have no idea who could get chosen for that or if they'd make it through a confirmation. Well, I'm, you know, I I wouldn't say uh, hold my breath, but I'm I'm hoping that 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 there can be enough consensus, uh, uh, reasonable thinkers in the Senate to to help us there to prevent something completely horrible from happening. It, it the I'm looking to these confirmation hearings that are going on this week to see uh, what what you know a Supreme Court one might look like. Do you think that's a, a fair oh. barometer for oh. what we can begin to expect? Well, from them? I mean. So, yeah, I do. I think um, the Jeff Sessions uh, nomination for attorney general is a mild snapshot of what a Supreme Court nomination um, hearing would look like. I mean, for for starters, they would both be housed in the Judiciary Committee. So we're looking at the same folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of who has is reportedly on the shortlist, they're all terrible. I mean, it is a it is absolutely a parade of nightmares. Um, so depending on which one you'd want to talk about, we could... We could do that. Um, but I think in terms of actual confirmation, I think any uh, nominee would make it through the Judiciary Committee. There's just no real way um, to stop it. Uh, but what we would be looking for on the full Senate floor is either an ability to filibuster, which would be tough, um, without getting a couple of the, you know, sort of last reasonably minded uh, Republican senators and I'm thinking there, Olympia Snow and Susan Collins, and that's it. I mean, you know, so those are sort of who we're, we're looking at. Um, and we may get that. Um, you know, they, they have been in the past. Um, but it is, uh, yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's going to be tough. I don't have, I don't have a lot of great, um, you know, sort of rays of shining hope. I will say during the Attorney General um, hearing in the Judiciary Committee, having the members of the Congressional Black Caucus come out and testify against uh, Jeff Sessions and specifically um, his promise to bring back law and order to the Department of Justice and what that has historically meant in terms of cracking down on civil rights for people of color, for members of the LGBTQ community, for immigrants, um, that again, we're, this is, we're talking about a time in um, our nation's history where we, we physically have to have our bodies on the line again. Um, and this is especially true for folks like me, who's, who are, you know, um, a white lady who wants to be and is down with the cause. Um, my body is one of th- those that has to be on the front line, right? I mean, you know, people of color, mm-hmm. our LGBTQ friends, they've been doing the work. Um, and it's white folks who really have to do the work. Yeah, yeah, I really think so. Because just looking at, you know, again, reflecting on the results of the election um whether we want to attribute that to uh, some racism or sexism or some combination thereof, it was, you know, white women overwhelmingly, or I say a majority, 53% voted for, for Trump. And I feel like I feel like I got to do penance for people that, you know, 
clearly don't understand how the world works or how legislation affects people. I feel like they're kind of separated. A lot like these legislators that you talk about in the book. Uh, one of the chapters that I found really interesting was the talk of D.C. And D.C. is very special in that uh, Congress gets to um, gets to tamper with, uh, or I should say lead, or what do you want to say, <laughs> regulate the the city and its its practices, including uh, access to abortion, since, you know, they, they don't have, um, you know, it's not, it's not like a state. So uh, it, it's almost um, laughably ironic that, that this is kind of how it is. Legislators who don't even live there or aren't really part of that community in a real way uh, come in and made decisions for the women that were there and then get to walk away from it and and not deal with the or improve or deal with the bad outcomes of those uh, legislative or the policy decisions that they made um, and left that for uh, women to to bear the brunt of uh, these policies. Um, you and you mentioned when we were talking a little bit about the fetal funerals that this is about a lot of these things are about increasing the cost, the financial cost, the emotional cost, the time cost, the lost work cost, all these costs. And uh, these women in D.C. who were who were affected, you know, you could pay up to $1,000 for your first trimester abortion, including all the expenses associated with it and the lost work and everything else that goes into having that. And uh, it seems that, like you said also earlier, to marginalize the already marginalized and kind of demonstrates how, uh, on one hand, the policies that, that make sure that people have a lack of access to, uh, to health care are combined with the policies that, that punish them for trying to make a, a decision to get an abortion, which should be their right. Um, could, you, could you speak a little bit to what happened in D.C. and how this is... I felt like a real example of, I mean, there are examples everywhere, but um, how, how intersectionality has really just made all these, it's a confluence of of errors in policy, and it's its coming to rest on the shoulders of, of the women who live in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so D.C. is an interesting um, uh Sort of case study uh, because you're right. DC has no independent representation. Um, Congress, more, I mean, you know, DC can sort of make its own um, laws to a, to a, at a municipal level, um, right? They have mayor and, and so on, um, but Congress controls the, the person brings for D.C., um, yet they have no representation in Congress. Um, I really want them to become a state very soon. That would be fantastic. Um, yes. But in the meantime, until then, um, up for a while, it was uh, conservative lawmakers, particularly um, a couple from the good state of Arizona, liked to use um, legislating abortion restrictions in D.C. as a way to sort of test run others that they, that they would want to see. And in this case, it was a 20-week ban. And one of the reasons why they wanted to do that is because, well, hey, there's no constituency to vote back against that, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. great if you're a lawmaker in, in D.C. Um, that can sort of impose that, um, except that you're not, you're not subject to a vote of your own constituency. But also because at the time this was happening, and, and this has changed somewhat, which is another lesson in why uh, 
elections matter. At the time, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which is the federal court of appeals that, that hears um, challenges to laws that come out up through Congress and, and involved D.C., um, was conservative. And so the thought was that that would be a place where they could get um, a split in circuits and run the, run the issue to the Supreme Court and, and force them to take it. Since the Obama administration, though, the D.C. Circuit has slipped back to um, a liberal majority. And it's not even like a progressive stream. It's just, a, you know, a reasonable liberal majority. Um, and, you know, without getting too into the legal weeds, the reason that is is because the Democrats fought for a little while on judicial nominations. It's also the reason why we can't filibuster Jeff Sessions' nomination, because we compromised on, on filibuster reform. But you can have me on later to talk about that. That's a, different, that's a whole different show. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole different show, um, is how bad we screwed up the courts and um, our sort of Senate procedure. But um, we did fight really hard for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. We have some fantastic judges on there. And so I don't anticipate that that's a strategy conservatives will keep up anymore, because they lose. Um, for example, when uh, the birth control benefit cases were going on, and those are about to get uh, restarted again, um, the one of the greatest opinions um, uh, in favor of the DC in favor of the birth control benefit came out of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, um, and. Uh, it, yeah, it was so courts matter. And the only way that we get control of the courts is by getting our people elected. And that's why we need to win elections. Yeah, that's pretty succinct right there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wanted to remind listeners, you're tuned into Issues for Your Tissues. My guest today, Jessica Mason Piccolo, co-author of Crow After Row, How Separate But Equal Has Become the New Standard in Women's Health and How We Can Change That. Uh, she co-authored this with Robin Marty. Uh, you can find Jessica on Rewire News. It's rewire.news where she is reporting. Uh, she is an attorney and law professor and writes on issues of constitutional law and public policy. Uh, Robin, you should also, if you are at all interested in, in our conversation, uh, you could follow her work. Um, most recently, she's been uh, published in Cosmopolitan. Uh, she also writes for Rewire News and on uh, women's health and rights and all the good things that you are interested in if you are tuned into Issues for Your Tissues. Uh, you can find them both uh, at Rewire, so that's an easy place. You can also find the Rewire legislative tracker there. Is there a quick link for that, Jessica? Oh, sure. Um, but hold on. You're going to have to give me a second. Oh, uh, no problem. So I, I think that the, this legislative tracker is going to be just so so important, especially, I mean, I, I'm thinking personally for Texas and trying to follow everything that's going on. And I know that um, a lot of my listeners are here in Texas, too, and will want to know everything that's been going on so far. We've already got you know, a, a full-out ban that's been filed. We've got all kinds of nasty stuff from the fetal funerals. We've got um, too many things going on. We've got our own bathroom bill that can be followed. Mm -hmm. there, it's, it's it's not going to be a pretty session. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure that it's, you know, we've got a $10 billion shortfall in our, in our budget that uh, makes me think that things like education and special education and uh, health care for children are, are going to get overlooked again. And we have, you know, the most uninsured children in the nation and the most uninsured adults in the nation. Um, but it looks like from the action in, in the Senate last night and, uh, you know, in the past week or so, that uh, the other states want to get into the running for most uninsured people. Um, 
as could you do you have anything to add to the conversation regarding the the federal efforts to repeal Obamacare and this mess that we are slowly moving ourselves into as a nation? Um, aside from the total cowardly nature in which the Senate decided to set up the, um, the or created the procedural vote to, to set up what's about to happen next. Um, you know, I think uh, there's, there's a lot going on. I mean, the, what people don't seem to understand in the Affordable Care Act repeal is, um, you know, not only are the insurance reforms that were in place, um, not only are, are those gone, but that there's a significant portion of the health insurance industry itself that relies on the Affordable Care Act in existence. And so there are going to be marketplaces broadly that are going to be thrown into chaos as this goes on. Um, and Republicans either don't care or apparently are too dumb to understand this because this is part of their constituency. So people are going to lose coverage. People are going to pay more for coverage. People are going to pay more for worse coverage. Um, you know, if you have an, a pre-existing condition, good luck. I mean, I'm on a daily medication and I am alive more or less because of the Affordable Care Act, you know, um, and I'm just one person. Um, and, and so, you know, all of that is terrible. And then what we're going to see, you mentioned education, you know, this goes back to me talking about the Trinity Lutheran cases, because it's not mm-hmm. just that states like, you know, Texas or basically most of the conservative states have these huge budget shortfalls. It's that the, the money that they do have then will get funneled into religiously based services, you know, and so then you've got to figure out, well, okay, you know, is are the only options for daycare, if I'm a working person, religiously affiliated daycares where they can refuse to take my child because I am, you know, because I'm gay. Or they can refuse to take my child because I'm a single mom and they have religious objections to that. Those or, are all real possibilities. Um, and, yeah. and so, or because you don't go to their church on Sunday or whenever. or you Exactly. Don't, yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and so uh, there... There's a lot of it. I mean, you know, there are you can already in in many states be fired for being gay. Um, You know, they're trying to conservatives are broadly trying to create a religious shield, um, which is from legal action on that, which is why on our legislative tracker, we don't talk about these bills as as religious freedom bills because they're not religious freedom bills. They're Mm -hmm. religious imposition bills. They're religious imposition laws. Um, Discrimination. They are pro discrimination laws. And that's. Uh, it calls into mind pieces of the Civil Rights Act, which brings me back to thinking about uh, Jim Crow, which you know brings me back to thinking about the book and how this is—it's been feels like it's been orchestrated, like the wool's been pulled over uh, so many people's eyes, and they're not seeing these connections. Well, and I think, you know, people are overwhelmed in their day-to-day life. I mean, my job is to see the connections, right? I'm a journalist. I'm a legal analyst. This is the area of expertise. This is what I do. Um, But before this, um, you know, when I was just a lawyer practicing law, I wasn't as tuned in. And so, you know, I mean, if you are just trying to pay your bills and put food on the table 
and get your kids through school. Um, the idea of being in tune at a very um, detailed level to what's happening all the time at your state legislature is a lot to ask people. And I think, you know, that's compounded by the fact that we've seen, you know, an ongoing rollback at state level um, investments in state reporting, right? News, newsrooms across the country at the state level um, are shrinking. Reporter, reporting staff is decreasing with most, you know, I mean, I guess one exception would be the Washington Post at the moment. But really, newsrooms are small. Some don't even have capital reporters. So, you know, if you are a person in a, you know, if you are in Fort Dodge, Iowa, for example, and so Mm -hmm. you are not in a significant urban area, um, you're working a job at one of the processing plants there, you know, you got to have a whole lot of energy to get out there and, and, you know, fight about this just, you know, as you're trying to get through day-to-day life. So I think on the one hand, you know, there has been a very specific misinformation campaign. And I think that it's kind of a perfect storm with the lack of support that local media um, has seen sort of historically. That's so right. It's, um, it's difficult to imagine, um, for me, not not paying attention, but I know that that it's not it's a luxury. It feels like a luxury at times, and and um, I'm thank you for reminding me of of that, and maybe a little bit of an obsession, a luxury and an obsession. Um, there are uh, just too many people who are working at multiple jobs, especially here in in the state of Texas, where we have the most minimum wage workers in the nation, you know, number one for minimum wage, number one for uninsured, number one for uninsured children, uh, and multiple jobs. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I, I hear that like every time I think of somebody working two jobs, I used to work three jobs when I was in school. Um, think about Bushy, uh, saying that that's, that's the American way. And, um, it just echoes in my mind that a lot of people are uh, suffering working multiple jobs. And even with more than one job, they still might not have health care coverage and might not even have enough to go through one of the exchanges, which are now under attack. Um, and more than likely, you know, the majority of uh, minimum wage jobs in Texas are held by women. And uh-huh. uh, those women don't have that health care and uh, don't have the access or the time to go um, lobby their legislators in Austin or come come to the state capitol to, to do that or even follow it uh, with any rigorousness in during the session, which is a, really a barrage of bills packed into this 140 days. Um, so it's important that, like you said earlier, that we who can get out there and put ourselves on the line and uh, be there for those that can't. I'm, I'm regularly reminded of them, especially by my mom, and I, I'm very appreciative of that. And I think about all those individuals when I'm reading how these laws in the book are affecting um, women, especially women of color. I think of uh, Pravi Patel in Indiana. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Indiana had its own chapter, which... Um, was interesting because I'm, I'm thinking of Pervy when I think of uh, Pervy Patel when I'm when I was reading a little bit about um, or reading about uh, Bebe Shuai and uh-huh. and her like she this is it's just incredible that um, that the laws are being used to punish women for uh, 
for their bodily processes and for things that they are doing that are not, that were never intended, um, primarily intended to end a pregnancy. Um, so whether that's uh, Ms. Patel or Shuai or, um, it, it, it just seems like um, the laws are being used wrongly and, and and now they're going to be used against uh, doctors as well. We have proposed legislation in Texas where um, where doctors and and women could be held liable for or uh, for ending for murder. Um, yeah, they'd be thrown in jail. It'd be a felony. Yeah, um, and it's not just Texas. It's Idaho. Um, it's Indiana. Um, and, you know, this week also in Tennessee, a woman by the name of Anna Yoka pled guilty to what was effectively felony abortion for trying to terminate a pregnancy on her own. Um, a woman whose story is, I think, um, the kind that we're going to hear more and more. So yeah. it's, it's not hyperbole to say that we're going back to the pre-Roe days, but it's even worse because pre-Roe, um, there was, for the most part, a, a sense that you generally didn't uh, prosecute women. Now, that's not always true. For example, uh, the first day of the testimony in the Jeff Sessions hearing, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein told her own story of being a prosecutor and having, or being a judge and having to sentence women who had been prosecuted for having an illegal abortion, and those women went to jail for 10 years. Um, Pervy Patel was facing a 20-year sentence for self-terminating a pregnancy. Um, and so what we're talking about is absolutely um, a sense of punishing women. We are not going back to pre-Roe. We are going back to the Salem witch trials. Right. And the the chapter on Idaho was uh, particularly touching because, um, well, uh, you know, it included the story of uh, Ms. McCormick, who uh, used RU486. She had gotten online to do her or to to self-abort and was prosecuted for it, uh, but that she had help from her sister. It's that people are asking for help and there's there's not anything available to them. And then when they do find something or somebody who can help them, uh, then then they're they're prosecuted and, and bad things happen. It's um, it reminds me of the medical abortion law that was made um, that was in Texas part of HB two that was uh, basically or is not in effect anymore because of the changes that the FDA made to the um, to prescribing or to the the process the protocol for medical abortion. Um, mm-hmm. So and still if you're if you're in South Texas, if you're in the Rio Grande Valley, um, it might be easier for you to go across the border to the, you know, a pharmacy than to uh, access a safe abortion. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, we saw those reports coming out um, as HB2 went into effect, um, not just regarding the medicinal abortion restrictions, but as, as clinics were closing, that women in Texas were absolutely crossing the border into Mexico to get care. Um, and, you know, I think that that, that is um, a testament to the real intent. I mean, these people don't care. Um, the idea isn't about being compassionate. It's about punishing and controlling women. Um, and the way that you, that you control women is by controlling the, their reproductive autonomy. And it's not just women. It's the LGBTQ community, too, right? You, when you criminalize 
um, intimacy in in a variety of forms, then um, you're really uh, you're really attacking um, and creating marginalized populations. There's you know there's no reason to think that we won't see a return to sodomy bans. It doesn't matter that the that the Supreme Court has said they're unconstitutional. Conservatives have shown that they clearly have zero disregard for what the Supreme Court says when they don't like it. So I would not at all be surprised to see um, as conservatives in states feel emboldened that they try to push this, you know, um, they are, it's just everywhere. I mean, we're seeing it with the bathroom bills, right? How is this going to be enforced? The only way that you enforce a bathroom bill is with a genital check. I mean, we need to be very clear. And I think our need, our side needs to not be afraid to sound what in polite company might be considered a little crude, but that is absolutely what it is. If you have a question about my gender identity and you are suggesting that I should not be in this particular bathroom, the only way that you are going to confirm that is by checking my anatomy. Right. And then not even then. What about gender reassignment surgeries? I mean, you need to carry around your, um, I guess, your confirmed um, genotype. You need to have or your... intersex people. I right. mean, you your know, there, there, there is a whole host of and a whole spectrum. And the reason that that is not being um, respected or acknowledged is because we don't have a rational uh, side on a rational opposition. You know, the fight in Texas over um, the Obama administration's transgender executive orders, for example, mm-hmm. um, what the folks in Franciscan Alliance, um, one of the cases, what they're arguing is that there is a fundamental religious objection to transgender people writ large, that their religious belief tells them that biology, that sex is immutable, it cannot be changed. And therefore, to adhere to their religious beliefs, they cannot accept the fundamental humanity of a transgender person. I mean, that is what they're arguing. Right. That's, so That's horrible. <laughs> like, who, who, you know, how can you consider yourself a moral person and, and make that argument with a straight face? That's right. And you, you kind of get into that uh, in the book, in Crow After Row. Uh, I think when we talk about personhood and what was that, um, which chapter? Mississippi? Um, Probably. Yeah, I'd personhood's all over it, but that was, I was right, thinking of I'd that. I'd have to double check the, uh, the table of contents Not because we do talk about it all over the place. Yeah, but I was thinking about that. I think Mississippi, um, because the title of the chapter, Bring Back the Coat Hanger, made me think of the case with um, Anna Anna Yanis. Oh, Anna Yoka. No, Mississippi, that's right. Mississippi, the the question in Mississippi is whether or not you can close the only clinic in the state um, and still meet Roe, which is what they tried to do. So far, the Fifth Circuit said you can't do that, but I guarantee Mississippi's going to try again. Oh, yeah. I mean... They're just going to keep on trying. And that's the thing, like even with, like you said, with the Supreme Court decision um, and, you know, Roe, they're, they don't care and they will uh, file these personhood bills or the clinic closure bills or anything else um, to to make it hard to be a woman or to not be like them, basically. Um, we have just a couple minutes left. And I, I wanted to make sure that you got to share with listeners uh, anything else that we hadn't touched on from Crow after Row, uh, how separate but equal has become the new standard of women's health. There's so much here, and I feel like we just got to, you know, gloss over some of the the um, 
most pertinent parts, but there's there's so much more that will be interesting to listeners um, and probably their friends too. So Crow After Row, what what did we miss? Um, well, I think we need to give an additional shout out to my brilliant co-author, Robin Marty, because really um, this is a woman who has been on the front lines of this reporting uh, for a lot longer than I have. And frankly, there is not a person that I know who knows the state-level legislative fights and the players and the, um, the who's and the what's and the how's and the why's and the, and the when's um, the way Robin does. And since she wasn't able to be on the show with me, I want to make sure that um, we give her a big radio hug because she's brilliant and every, all of your listeners should su- support her work. Yeah, she, uh, the things that she writes uh, are really touching and really she re- really gets to the heart of, um, of maternal health, of reproductive health, and uh, shows how the rubber meets the road, really. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there are other so many stories in here that we didn't get to. Again, you guys, we might be able to, if it's not in the Austin Public Library, I'm going to make sure that there is a request in there that, <laughs> that this gets on the shelves um, so that people can read it if they are at all interested in seeing the information from these different states. It seems that uh, Crow After Row goes goes through these states and shows how this model legislation is is uh, is taking effect. And we can see now, since it's been a few years since this one was published, uh, we can see how the, this legislation is now you know making its rounds in in other states, um, uh, like we had talked about earlier. Is there? So you said that you're interested in. I, I just want to. I've got a list of things that I should be keeping my eyes on, and. You said Trinity Lutheran is one of the cases that you are paying attention to, and you're definitely using the or following legislative stuff with the Rewire legislative tracker, which we can find on the website rewire.news. But is there anything else that we need to be keeping an eye on uh, in the next couple months? Um, oh, geez, that's um, huge. Yeah, I, w- I mean, I would say that um, obviously ACA repeal, the Affordable Care Act repeal, um, if people don't want that to happen, they need to get on the phone with their legislators and just flood the lines. Um, and then I think, too, we're really going to see um, in the first 45 days, first 60 days of the Trump administration, how serious conservatives are about cracking down on civil rights. And so I think we just need to be braced for that. It's going to be a big fight. We need to push back. Um, public education is going to be in the crosshairs. But I think if we all work together, um, we can at least provide a good resistance um, as we organize into um, the next round of midterms, which I know it's ridiculous to think about another election, but really we have to um, mm-hmm. because uh, we we really have no other choice. Um, and then in terms of all the other things that we need to talk about, Katie, um, I'll come back anytime because you're right. It's I mean, it's going to be nonstop. Um, you know, we barely scratched the surface in terms of L- the anti-LGBT um, legislation that's out there and the ways in which it's connected to the anti-reproductive rights um, legislation. And so, uh, I, you know, I just, um, I, I urge your listeners to pay attention and to take good care because it's going to be a long fight. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. My pleasure, Katie, anytime. All right. Have a good night. You too. Bye. All right, guys, you heard it here first. That was Jessica mason Piclo, co-author of Crow After Row. She and Robin Marty have written this book, 
And you can find it on Amazon and around. I'm going to do my part to ask for it to be in the library if it's not already there. If you're listening in Austin and on 91.7 or, you know, if you're on koop.org, uh, you can, um, I'm sure you can Kindle it or something too. Uh, so this will be available to you. And this is really important because it uh, demonstrates the the way that all these laws are working against people that don't need to be worked against. So thank you. And uh, stay tuned next week. We're going to have more on the Women's March and Roe Anniversary. So uh, tune in then too. 